Hello everyone and welcome to Tyndall Talks. I'm excited for this one today as me, James Mason and my colleague Charlotte Brown are talking to my very own PhD supervisor, Professor Alice Larkin. We chat about how sails could be the technology of the future for reducing carbon emissions from ships. We learn whether it's worse for the climate to fly during the day or at night. And we also delve into carbon offsetting and why it might not be as good for the planet as we think. We also get insight into what it's like to record a TED Talk and get Alice's perspective on being a woman in science. If the quality of the recording sounds a bit better than what you're hearing right now, then you'll have spotted that we actually recorded this episode before the start of the UK lockdown in March. So you'll have to excuse us when we start talking about the slow uptake of video conferencing technology, which I'm sure we've all been getting very familiar with over the lockdown months. We're both really excited about this one, so let's get listening and hope you enjoy. Hi Alice, thanks for being with us today. You're welcome, glad uh, to be here. <laughs> Shal and I are very excited to talk to you today, it's nice to have someone that we know. So we know that you come from uh, quite, quite you know, a science background, you did a degree in physics. That's right, um, yep. So we're wondering what was your inspiration to go from physics into climate change? Because um, we know you went in, into climate change in your PhD. Yeah. Um, so just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so... I mean, as a kid, I was always interested in in science and I enjoyed physics, I enjoyed astronomy and that was kind of a bit of a hobby. But I've always been also quite outdoorsy, if you like, so, you know, but not really recognised that that was something that was particularly important to me personally. When I studied my degree, I mean, I really enjoyed the physics side of it. I particularly enjoyed the astronomy side. But when you think about the kind of role that I might have in the future, it kind of felt a to me, and I know that, you know, there's a huge amount of value in doing astronomy and, and so on. But to me personally, I just felt it, it seemed a bit indulgent. The kind of job I had in my head was, you know, it would be go, being able to go to telescopes on the other side of the world and, and watch the stars. And uh, and that was the kind of thing that, you know, whilst I found really interesting, I actually didn't think that I would personally find that like as a rewarding career. Um, so I started thinking about how I could use the things that I'd learn in physics and apply them more in a kind of uh, in sort of natural world or in the environment side of things, which, like I say, I had kind of an interest in just through like enjoying being outdoors, walking, you know, um, nature and so on. Um and so I looked for some PhDs that kind of straddled the two things in a way. So, you know, looked at planetary atmospheres. I was exploring things like that, you know, modelling planetary atmospheres. So, you know, the planetary thing being then potentially applicable to the Earth. And also looking at, uh, so when I finally did my PhD, whilst it was a climate modelling PhD, it did actually encompass some of the astronomy side because I was looking at sunspot cycles. Um, so looking at solar cycles. So it literally brought together the astronomy side and then the climate side. And then I got obviously more familiar with climate change and started to understand um, that this was such a big issue that I really wanted to work in it and get, get into it more more deeply. And why was it specifically research? Do you think you're just quite a curious person and want to find out more about things I mean actually I, I actually left research after my PhD I because of what I was doing was very uh, it was computer modeling it was uh, very it, within a sort of physics group um, it was quite it was it was very disciplinary and so whilst I had the interest in the topic I actually didn't think I was a particularly good researcher and I didn't think that I particularly enjoyed research and I sort of lost my way a little bit at that point uh, like many people I lost confidence uh, I think that happens a lot with people doing PhDs so I looked to do something that I thought was was more attuned to me, which was more on the communication side, um, science communication, or 
you know, something about talking about science, which I could be really enthusiastic about, but not doing it myself because I didn't feel I was, I wasn't confident anymore that I was a good researcher. Um, and while I, whilst I, I got tons out of that, lots of experience, because I worked at the Institute of Physics, I worked for a medical school, you know, basically talking about science and working on science and translating it for lay audiences. Uh, while I was doing that, I started also to get a little bit bored and started to do my own research on things like my family history and stuff like that. And I realised actually I really enjoyed the process of research, but perhaps I was just in the wrong kind of research. So then I started looking at different jobs all over the place and a job was advertised in Tyndall, Manchester, um, in the University of Manchester, looking for a physicist that could communicate. That's what I saw on, on the job advert. And I thought... I could do that. And so I applied and I've never looked back. Best job I've ever had. <laughs> and you also realise what it is that you do want to do and what it is that you don't want to do. And I think that's a really important part of thinking about, you know, how you can make a contribution, how you can do something that you feel, you know, positive about day to day. And when you find a job that you really enjoy, I mean, it's, it's such a great thing because, you know, you can you put just so much more of yourself into it. And and the Tyndall Centre has been fantastic from that point of view, because it you get stimulated by so many different people, different ideas, different disciplines. And um, it just really broadens your mind, which has just been fantastic. Yeah, it's very personally rewarding as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I imagine when you joined Tyndall, it was a bit different to how it was today. What was your first experience? When did you join and what was your first experience? My first impression, my first experience and my first impression was, you know, I, I sort of had it in my mind that I didn't really want to work back in a university. Um, it didn't feel very kind of innovative. And when I arrived at the particular corridor and building, it wasn't particularly inspiring, I have to admit. It seemed quite quite backward, looked a bit dated. Um, and then all of a sudden, this kind of flurry of people started running around, looked quite disorganised in some ways. But someone was talking to me about, oh, we need to get sure we get the organic biscuits in. And then uh, and then someone else was like, oh, I haven't set up the projector yet for your interview. Really sorry about that. But it was actually a really friendly environment, really sort of uh, relaxed, made me feel quite relaxed. And then the thing that struck me, you know, the very first thing that struck me was when I part of my interview was actually being interviewed by a whole group of people from Tyndall, not just by two people as the standard interview would be. And that group of people included uh, someone who's now our director of Tyndall Manchester, Carly McLaughlin, who was a master's student at the time doing a maternity cover, a piece of research. And so basically the ethos was you include everybody and you ask everybody to ask you questions. There was also one of our PS colleagues, so uh, on the administrative side, asking questions as well. And I just thought, what a great inclusive environment to to be interviewed in. And, And I left that interview thinking, I wish I'd done a lot more work to do a better interview because I I really want to work in this place. Yeah, that's definitely a strong point of Tyndall. And I think one of my first experiences, I introduced myself as a PhD student and I immediately got told, no, you're a PhD researcher. We kind of don't class you as students. So, Alice, uh, part of your research is about shipping and reducing carbon emissions from shipping. And so is James's. So I'm lucky I get to ask questions to two experts today. (laughs) First of all, how significant are emissions from shipping in terms of overall global budgets? Okay, so this is the bit where people often say, well, you know, one person might say, well, it's only a small percentage of global emissions, so we don't need to worry about it, Um, which it's true that it's a it's a few percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, um, two or three, depending on the estimates. But one of the things that we have to remember is that if you break any 
bit of any, you know the co- different countries of the world or any sector and so on there are always going to be a few percent because there's a lot of sectors there's a lot of countries that kind of thing so one of the comparisons we sometimes can make uh, is you know it's the equivalent to the emissions of the whole of South America um it's you know it, it's a global industry which is why it's a little bit different to um, some sectors because obviously if you took all of global trans road transport then that's going to be a bigger percentage um but this because the shipping industry serves you know globalized markets trade and so on uh, it doesn't belong to any one particular country it's quite complicated from that point of view so yeah so it's a few percent of of global greenhouse gas emissions that few percent is a few percent that we need to get rid of because you know we've got to do something about all greenhouse gas emissions um and because it underpins you know our day-to-day consumption a lot of transportation of fossil fuel, but, you know, our everyday goods and so on, uh, really essential for an international trade in countries that are, de- you know, developing economies and so on. Got to, to make sure that we have a system there that can meet climate change objectives, but also serve the demands and needs um, of, of people around the world in terms of, uh, you know, goods and services that we need to produce. Yeah, and as, as you said, uh, a lot of people would say, that you know shipping emissions are a small percentage of global emissions but um if it was a country the the shipping industry would be the sixth sixth largest carbon emitter in the world so you know it it really is an amount that we need to um we need to 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 do something about and the problems arise when it um because the shipping industry is such an international industry a lot of the emissions of the ships actually occur in international waters so they're not the responsibility of any one country so those emissions are quite hard to apportion to a specific country so the emission reductions were left to um, the regulatory body of shipping which is called the international maritime organization and they are notoriously slow for setting uh, policies uh, for climate change yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, whenever you get one of these global organisations that has to make a decision, uh, you've got so many different interests, different parties coming to the table that the the process, I mean, if you go and observe the process, which, you know, I think we've both had the opportunity to do um, at the International Maritime Organisation, you go so. and sit there. Yeah, it, it feels really painful. Uh, <laughs> it feels like, why can't we just kind of, you know, get our heads around this and, and do something? You know, don't you realise we've got a climate emergency yeah. is kind of how you feel. But you can see that this is a, this is a very slow process. And as as you say, James, the, um, the, the challenge is that, you know, the share is going to grow because there is growth in global trade um, and there aren't there aren't incentives sufficient incentives currently to be driving emissions and, and the carbon intensity of those ships in the right direction and obviously if you've got a growing sector on top of the fact that you've got very limited intervention that's going to improve the energy efficiency or the, the you know the carbon intensity of the fuels or different propulsion techniques like you work on in terms of wind assist techniques so that means like you know using sails and, and things to try and reduce the energy that the ships need to go forwards um, then you're going to be left with this growing share from this this particular sector um, at the same time we need to get all sectors to reduce emissions you know to transform really um, and in a relatively well a very short time frame so so that's why there's such an interest I think in isn't there James about shipping you know why we're interested in researching it it's really interesting because to be honest until I listened to one of James's talks I didn't think ships were particularly important I hate ships I get seasick I don't go on them <laughs> and then actually you realize that 
they do carry so many goods that we need and they're so important to our lives. Alice, you touched on sales and that's one way that we can reduce emissions. James, do you want to expand on that? Because I know that's very particular to your PhD. Yeah, so uh, the in, in terms of reducing emissions in the shipping sector, there are different uh, different directions you can take. Um, you can either implement technological measures uh, where you you know introduce technology to the ship to reduce its carbon emissions. You've got operational measures where you actually change the operations of the industry um, to reduce the carbon emissions, and you've got demand reduction. Now I focus on you know technological and um, operational, so I specifically look at putting sails back on ships to reduce their emissions. So the the, the, the source of emissions for ships is, uh, you know, them burning fuels and the big uh, burning fuel and the big en- engines that they have, and the fuel can be quite high carbon. Um, so to reduce this emission, to, to reduce these emissions, we've got to uh, reduce the amount of fuel they burn. So if you can put a sail on the ship so that it's getting natural propulsion from the wind, and, you know, these are quite, quite modern sails, quite different from ones you might expect um, to see, um, then, yeah, you know, these can provide natural propulsion and you can reduce the amount of power needed by the engine. So you, you reduce the amount of fuel that the ship actually burns. And do you think they could come in soon? Is there a kind of timescale that that might happen? Yeah, so there are there are um, a few in operation already. The most notable one was uh, the Maersk Pelican. So that was a project um, that was uh, done with with Shell and a company called Norse Power, which are the leading sail provider in the industry at the minute. There's there's a lot more demand for this. There are a lot more of these ships in actual operation. It still still only is a handful, but you know we know we've got this climate emergency. We know we need to reduce our emissions. So one question: whether we will see them? I would argue, you know, we we do need to see them um, in order to meet the targets that we have. So there's hope for shipping. I mean, I think it's a really rosy picture, I think, for in, in many ways. Um, I don't think that the challenges are technological. I mean, there's always issues around the rollout and delivery of technology. There are actually quite a lot of different options for shipping, um, you know, aside from we were just talking about the kind of the these wind assist type technologies like sails. Um, but there are other alternative fuels that are worth exploring. The big advantage for, for looking at ships compared with planes um, is that it's much easier to retrofit a ship than it is a plane. And the, the reason that's important is because the time frame we're talking about for making kind of significant changes around um, the, the sort of the carbon emissions associated with all sectors is that you're going to have to do stuff with the system that you've already got. You're going to have to change the ships you've already got. You're going to have to change the ports you've already got. I mean, you know, we can't be throwing, you know, everything away and then and rebuilding everything in this time frame. And that's really important for shipping. And it's why it's a positive message around what we can do. The difficulty is incentivizing that change. And it comes back to then the very slow progress that you get because it's an international organization that largely drives it. You know, a question for me would be, you know, the UK is an island. We're an island nation with an amazing maritime history. What are our opportunities to lead on in terms of innovation, in terms of showing, demonstrating that, you know, there is a different way of doing things that is very low carbon. Um, Because at the end of the day, it does take leadership either from an organisation or from a government um, when you've got something so complicated. So the challenge here is how do you incentivise it, not are there any options? Focusing on aviation, 
how does aviation contribute to climate change? Obviously, we know that planes burn uh, fossil fuels and that produces pollution, but there's there's more to it than that as well, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I mean, because of the particular altitude that the planes fly, you know, there's there's sensitive chemistry up there that also plays a role, um, and that and so so some of the emissions that you know you do get other emissions from things that you know like car transport on the ground as well, but but because aircraft fly at this particular sensitive part of the atmosphere, the emissions these other emissions there also create other warming and cooling effects so they that is quite complicated what's ha- what's happening there um so you get emissions of soot and water vapor um and you can get the creation of condensation trails so these are the like the trails that you see out the back of aircraft and and you don't always see them you probably notice that sometimes on a really sunny nice blue sky day sometimes the planes are going along and they don't have those trails out the back of the aircraft and then on other days you know the whole sky will be covered in them and they expand and they grow and they actually turn into what we call cirrus clouds which are some of the very high uh, clouds that are sort of very high up in in either the the upper troposphere or the lower stratosphere so we're kind of getting up into the air the, the place where the aircraft crews at basically um now what the impact of those kind of emissions those sudden water vapor creating the contrails creating these like these sort of cirrus clouds is that they actually have quite a warming effect um so they have an additional warming impact on the climate when when we produce those that warming effect is bigger at nighttime um and these these condensation trails and cirrus clouds they don't last for the time frame that you get for your carbon dioxide emissions that are released. So when carbon dioxide is released, it lasts for hundreds, possibly thousands of years, depending on where it goes in, in the carbon cycle. Um, and so this is an issue because obviously you need to reduce those emissions to to deal with climate change. These are these are emissions that are lasting maybe hours to days at the most these particular kinds of emissions. Um, and so, you know, the interventions that you might make in order to not have that additional warming might be, you might think, well, let's fly in a place where you don't produce those condensation trails or those cirrus clouds. Um, and you can do that by choosing to fly in a place where the humidity is at a particular point where you're not going to do that. The trouble with that is that the reasons that aircraft cruise where they do cruise is because there are very little turbulence there you know that's the whole point is you don't want to be using fuel to get through kind of like weather so they cruise at these kind of sensitive places in the atmosphere now if you were to say fly where the weather is and where you're not going to produce the condensation trails and the cirrus cloud you have to use a bit more fuel to do that if you use more fuel you produce more co2 so there's a kind of trade-off there it's quite complicated and that's just one aspect so there are also other emissions um so aircraft release NOx emissions. So NOx emissions means oxides of nitrogen, basically. So different different kinds of oxides of nitrogen. And again, they have different impacts. Um, so they produce um, ozone, uh, which is a greenhouse gas, which creates a warming, but they also deplete, uh, so reduce the amount of methane in the atmosphere, which has a cooling impact because it's also a greenhouse gas. So again, it's a bit complicated. It's not kind of hard and fast and obvious what what happens there. And then because you're talking about gases that are lasting for shorter amounts of time. So again, methane doesn't last as long as CO2 and and ozone as well is is different. So you're you're kind of comparing apples and pears. So if you wanted to say, well, what's the additional warming impact of aviation compared with just the CO2? It's actually not that easy to answer. There are numbers that people use as a kind of uh, a factor to take into account that there are these additional impacts. Um, 
but they're generally based on what to date in history, you know, what's the amount of additional warming that's been caused by these other emissions, right? And that typically um, is around, well, there's a, there used to be estimates of around two to four, I think that around two times the amount of warming is what people kind of assume often. But like I say, the science is, is quite complicated around that. So, and, it, and that makes it challenging for policymakers because it's like if you want to make an intervention that does something to one of these emissions... Uh, what's the impact going to be on the others? And that is quite a complicated area of research. So it's interesting, but the summary is flying is more problematic than just the emissions of the carbon dioxide alone. That's really interesting because I knew flying was very carbon intensive and I knew that there were other pollutants they put out that didn't help with climate change, but I didn't understand how complex it was. So a real challenge. Yeah, it is really complicated. Um, And, you know, like I say, these trade-offs, because if you add... If you add a piece of technology, so say in a car engine, you might add a piece of technology that improves how clean that that engine burns. Often these things are extra things, so they add weight. Anything that adds weight to an aircraft is going to reduce its fuel efficiency. So, you know, there's, there is this balance, this trade-off all the time, um, which which makes it more difficult. And, and the time frame. So, you know, you could argue that, uh, uh, you know, one intervention to reduce the condensation trails is just not, you know, if you didn't fly the aircraft, you wouldn't get that additional impact, right? So on that day, you get no additional warming, but the CO2 uh, from the day before is still there. So even though you've grounded the aircraft, and if you have no more flights compared with today, you will continue to grow CO2 because it just keeps accumulating. Even if it's five flights today, five flights tomorrow, five flights the next day, that CO2 accumulation will grow, but you won't be growing the, the warming because of these other condensation trails. So back just to carbon, Mm. simplify a bit. How does the aviation sector compare to other forms of transport in terms of global carbon emissions? Yeah, so it's actually a little bit similar to or quite similar to the shipping industry. So again, we're talking about an international industry here. Um, and it's around two to three percent of of global uh, greenhouse gas emissions or CO2 emissions. But what James was talking about earlier is is quite an important factor. So we, we all rely on shipping for, you know, one way or another for the goods that we consume, right? All of us, um, you know, m- some much more than others, depending on your level of wealth. When it comes to flying, not everybody in the world flies. And even within a country like the UK, not everybody flies every year. And actually there are a large chunk of people that, that don't fly. So whilst it's kind of similar to the international shipping sector and the shipping sector in terms of its its sort of uh, impact now on emissions, it's really disproportionately related to wealthy, tends to be wealthy people in wealthy countries that are doing the flying. And so the impact is coming from quite a small proportion of people. And again, the similar argument, though, goes with the aviation sector that as we we don't have, and, and even much more so than shipping, we don't have technologies that we can just implement to decarbonise aviation. And, it, and it's growing rapidly. So, you know, countries around the world where the economies are developing rapidly tend to have very high growth rates in aviation. And that means more passengers, more passenger kilometres, more planes. And if we're not decarbonising them, it means growth in that, that carbon share 
every year. And it's much more prominent for aviation because the whilst in shipping, you have this range of technologies that you might might be able to implement and retrofit. You just it's really difficult to retrofit planes and you've just not got the technological options there. And and you've got this issue of justice. You know, it's like you're using it for quite different things to your daily consumption of food or goods. You know, so I think there are some really challenging issues there. To, to to meet our climate targets, both nationally and internationally, do we have to reduce aviation emissions to zero? We well, we have to reduce aviation emissions uh, very significantly. There is an argument that the unless you you know in the time frame that we're talking about, unless you actually stop all of the flying, then you are going you can't reduce it to zero because there aren't going to be the technologies in the time frame. And this is partly why there's just been this whole interest in negative emission technologies. So technologies that can actually reduce the CO2, take it out of the atmosphere, lock it undergrounds, keep it there for a long time, so that there are some sectors, and aviation isn't the only one, agriculture is another, where there will be greenhouse gases associated with agriculture that are produced simply because we use fertiliser. And that doesn't matter whether it's like organic fertiliser or industrial produced fertilizer you know people have to eat food has to be grown and so there are some emissions that we just cannot reduce and so then that means that you need to find other ways in which to take uh, these greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere I think what's really interesting about aviation is that you know again everyone's got to eat right so we have to find ways in which we can decarbonize and, and reduce emissions significantly from agriculture and then try to work through how can we use these other technologies and when i say technology it's in its broadest terms so it could be like extra afforestation so really stopping deforestation and, and planting more trees and so on you know you can see a real massive motivation for why you definitely need to do that for our food system if we're going to meet these these climate change objectives laid out in things like the Paris Agreement. But when it comes to air travel, you know, the, it comes back to some of these social science questions about what we're using it for and why we're using it. Um, you know, if we haven't got the technology there, then do we also need to think about the demand side of this? Like who's flying, what they're flying for, how much flying is reasonably reasonable to be done given we have this climate emergency, which is why some of the conclusions of, of my research have been that we don't pay enough attention to the demand side of this problem. We have to look at the issue of growth in demand. Um, and I, in my view, until we have the technologies that are available to decarbonise the supply side of of, of the aviation problem, then we have to take measures to to minimise the growth of demand, to reduce growth, to stabilise it in some places. And this might be through things like a moratorium airport expansion and stuff like that, you know, things that sound quite, quite drastic. But frankly, you know, we don't have a solution to this. So, you know, some things perhaps need to pause or at least be really looked at in a lot more depth than they are at, at the moment. And what role does offsetting have? Because I've heard, um, you know, it's become quite a big thing yeah. recently. I've heard definitely heard my friends talk about it in terms of I'm flying or but I bought this carbon offset. What's your opinion on that? Um, I have an issue. I, I, I'm not a fan of carbon offsets uh, if if it has a fan club, but I'm not. I'm not in it. Um, so the issue with offsetting that exists at the moment is that you know you have to guarantee that wherever you put your money in one of these schemes, that those emissions not only are those emissions really going to be reduced, and of course there are you know there are differences. So there will be some organisations, some uh, ways of doing it that are really good. You know, like actually take you know 
um, some industrial emissions perhaps out of the atmosphere, just actually stop them, you know, give some money to an organisation to stop producing those greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but there'll be others where there's a there's an intention to do that. Um, but the reality is that the for the way in which we kind of account for these things doesn't lead to those the, the equivalent amount of emission reduction. Now that's in it, and it's all very well just doing that now, but you also have to guarantee that those emissions are never going to come back out into the system again. So if you imagine that you've planted some trees that you've used as your carbon offset for your flight, and and those trees are the equivalent amount of CO two over time as your as your CO2 that you'd have emitted from your flight. What you have to be able to guarantee is that no one is going to chop down those trees and burn them or that they're not going to get accidentally burned in, you know, as climate change impacts grow, etc. You really have to guarantee that those are going to be locked away because otherwise we're just we're just not actually reducing emissions. Now, there may well be, particularly in this 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 time of, of climate emergency, you know, we need to invest in things that lock up CO2 for sure. But I just don't think that they can be equivalent to us releasing those emissions now. You know, we need to be not releasing those emissions. And we need, and if we want to put money into schemes to support other things, then fine, but don't do it as a, as a reason to be able to do your other thing. You know, I think we just have to be, my own view is we have to be more honest about that. This is a really difficult message to take because what it suggests is that we really need to do things differently. This is not about just incremental change. This is about doing things differently, about whole system change, and sometimes it's about doing less things. And this applies to all of us, whatever sphere of influence we have. So it could be from writing to our local politician, to talking to our boss at work or being the boss at work, or talking with our friends and family, or just quite simply changing our own lifestyles. So that was a clip from you doing your TED talk, which is very cool. And I just want to pick up on, you said about changing your own lifestyles. It's particularly interesting because you have actually chosen not to fly. Mm. Can you tell me about the moment that you decided kind of enough was enough? Was there like a trigger where you were like, right, I cannot fly now? I'm not sure that there was a trigger specifically because I think I'd already, I mean, I've never been someone who flew a lot. So like, you know, I wasn't, um, I didn't grow up going on family holidays, flying and stuff. It just didn't happen in my family. So it wasn't like I had a, a lifestyle where I flew every year or anything like that. But I had flown for, I probably had flown more for work actually than within my social life. Um, so for conferences and things like that. And when I used to turn up at um, talking about aviation particularly, and because the conclusion quite quickly was that, you know, we need to address the demand side of this issue. Uh, so around 2004, 2005, when I was really starting to, you know, draw those conclusions, people would really, you know, like because it was quite, um, it was a difficult environment to give that message in, especially if you're talking with people in the aviation industry, because uh, it's not a good message for the industry to, to have to hear, that I would very much get challenged you know quite sometimes quite aggressively about um you know about my conclusions but sometimes it wasn't about the content of the conclusions it would be like well you know you've obviously flown here to to give us this presentation so you know what does that say and that kind of challenge and I think actually the, the times when it was done like that most directly I probably hadn't actually flown but you know because I was quite an early career researcher you know you don't want to stand on the lectern and go well actually you know <laughs> I didn't fly and I came by this um but it became clear to me that that people are interested in what I was doing 
as a researcher in this sphere, um, particularly around aviation and particularly because of the conclusions I was drawing. So it wasn't that I was thinking that just as a climate change researcher in general, that, that this is a position that had to be taken. Um, it was more because it was very much my aviation focus um, and this this kind of conclusion about demand. So I, I, I think I started, I remember actually I was asked to do a, a flight for work to America. It's the only time I've been to America. And I remember I didn't feel that I was in, in a senior enough position to push back and say, no, I didn't want to go. And I ended up going and I didn't feel it was important enough really for me to have actually flown. I feel like I could have done what I did through virtual means but I went along with it and I went um and then I just felt like that I'm not going to do that again I'm not going to fly um for work purposes and if that means that I damage my career in the process then so be it because actually this is more important than my career or whatever you know my standing um this is this is this is real you know the carbon intensity of flight is is massive people want to know that what I'm saying uh, is also something that I really believe you know when you actually think about your conclusions of your research. One way I describe it is if you go to a GP, a doctor, and they're saying, look, you really got to give up smoking. It's going to, you know, give you cancer. And they're sitting there smoking away in front of you. You're not going to think that they take their conclusion seriously. You're going to think that they're having you on and they're just saying it for your benefit. So I honestly think that there's a consistency thing there that's important. I think it, it matters and I now think it matters what us more broadly as climate change researchers do. I think people do ask those questions. It comes up in the media and so on. So I, my last flight was um, was actually with my family and I, I took a train with my family because my brother was living out in China and we took the train to Beijing, which was an amazing experience. Um, but my uh, my mum and dad were were not really wanting to do the the train journey on the way back as well. And so I and my mum is terrified of flying. So I agreed that I would hold her hand and, and we would fly back together. And that was my last flight. So that was back in 2008. So it's been a little while now and I don't intend to fly again unless I was some, some crisis, you know, I'm away from home a long way for whatever reason and some family crisis, then obviously then I, I would do that. But So you talked about the, the, the pressures that people have to fly, um, mm. especially like you said, when you were a young researcher and you yeah. felt that you were able to push back. What advice would you give to young researchers such as Charlotte and myself um, and also, the, you know, people who are expected to fly for work purposes you know, maybe they don't feel comfortable telling their boss that, you know, we're yeah. in the middle of a climate emergency. Well, this is where I have this issue with individual action versus collective action and, and what we can do, you know, this sphere of influence thing. Because, of course, if you say to individuals, right, you need to, you know, question why you're flying for work. And, and that you know, the, the Tyndall Centre has developed a really helpful decision tree about that, you know, asking yourself, could you could you do that interaction virtually? You know, and I think we have that within our gift as researchers to ask that question. Um, could you find a different way of getting there? Could you actually do, could you get the same benefit by doing the talk in somewhere else at another time in another location? Um, you know, we could ask ourselves all those questions, but I also think it's quite difficult still as an early career researcher to feel that you can take that decision yourself you kind of feel like you need the support of a supervisor of a you know a principal investigator another academic who's perhaps a bit more senior in the organization that says you know this is okay and and so I think that there is an important role there for people like myself people who have had the benefit of um 
of, of sort of maybe of pushing back, but also uh, of being lucky enough to have had those experiences early on where we, you know, we have had the chance to travel and so on. We need to now say, well, actually, if, you, if you're going to, um, you know, have your successful academic career, then I need to be part of helping you to make the decisions that you need to make in order to do that. I need to be able to support, you know, your promotions case where somebody says, well, they haven't done enough international conferences and say, well, hang on a minute, you know, look at all these other things that this individual does. This isn't a, this isn't the only marker of a successful academic. And I think we get really hung up from an academic point of view on our international visibility. But I think there are ways in which you can be internationally visible and not necessarily do as much travel. You might have to do some, but maybe not as much. Um, in other in other areas, in other businesses, obviously, I don't know them so well. But I think that there is an increasing appetite and interest in virtual communication virtual meetings and, you know, just asking yourself, could you do it a bit differently? Could you have a, 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 you know, a really good, meaningful relationship that you build, but you don't necessarily build it by doing all of that, uh, all of that travel. Um, I think it's an adjustment and it's hard and we all need to think about how can we make it work. And I think the more we use these different technologies to do it better, the better those technologies will get. I think we, we haven't really taken them on, you know, taken them up in the way that perhaps we could have done 10 years ago. And I think if we had, they would be much better than they are now. Um, and am I right in thinking that recently you attended a conference on an iPad, on a, <laughs> attached to a Segway. Yeah, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, I was contacted by um, ETH in Switzerland, um, the university there, and and they wanted to run a... There was a conference about virtual communication. Um, so that was the actual topic of the conference. And so they wanted to run it with people in different locations around the world, and they wanted to do some of the kind of formal stuff, so the talks and the panel discussions uh, virtually. So there were like groups of people in rooms who were doing that, which was which was one part of it. But the other thing that they were interested in is, is testing is the social networking aspect of conferencing. So of course, that's the bit that people often say, well, you know, yeah, of course you can do a talk, you could do a pre-record talk, but you don't get the social benefit of going to the conference if you're not doing the social stuff and you're not physically there. So what they did is they, they got a, an iPad, as you say, and they sort of pinned it to a Segway. And then they, they linked me up with a technology where I could remotely uh, walk around or, or zoom around the room uh, from my desk in Manchester uh, in Switzerland. And my little Segway had my little, so my face was like in the iPad. And then they pinned a little badge to the bottom of the <laughs> iPad that was like, you know, my name badge. Um, and I could wheel around the room and wheel up to desks and tables where people were drinking wine and have discussions. I got some really nice photos. I was sort of sent it around Twitter and things at the time. Um, and the downside was that I'd forgotten to get myself any wine. So they were all <laughs> there having their wine and nibbles. And and I was sat in my office on my own, uh, in a, you know, on a cold evening. I was thinking, actually, this this hasn't kind of worked quite as, as it could have done. So I think what you need to do is you need to, you know, have those have those interactions, perhaps, you know, have other people at the other end as well. And, and definitely, you know, have a drink of your choice. It doesn't have to be wine, but that would have been nicer. When I went on to uh, secondary school, I had a really inspirational physics teacher um, who just was really enthusiastic about what we were doing, just inspired the class. And I never actually felt uh, unusual for liking physics as a, as a female student. I was never made to feel like that. Same when I did my A-levels, so again, I had, had a very young teacher actually. And then when I did my PhD, I was really lucky. My supervisor is a, a woman, Professor Joanna Haig, and she was just uh, really great at building a team, just incredibly supportive and has helped me to think about my team and the people that I work with and how to galvanise that enthusiasm. 
Um, and then on a personal perspective, um, my family was always really supportive. Nobody ever said, you know, that's the wrong subject for you or anything like that. And that was really important to me. And I've got two brothers and nobody sort of suggested that, you know, they should be doing things that, that you know, I, I can't do. Um, and my granddad in particular was, you know, sort of saying, well, don't, you know, don't always look to the boys for, you know, all the good stuff. You know, she'll do stuff, good stuff as well. So that, that was that clip was you talking about people who inspire you and you mentioned your PhD supervisor and mm. also the fact that your family have always been very encouraging and you've never been any different to your brothers. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like being a woman in an engineering department and particularly head of the engineering department and any experiences that you've had there? Yeah, I mean, it, I've always felt that in some ways I've been at the sort of the in front of the, the sort of this wave of, of support for women in science and engineering has always been talked about ever since I was um, an A-level student. And, you know, I feel like I have had benefits from that, you know, people being supportive, uh, encouraging, making sure that you don't kind of like lose your enthusiasm because, you know, because it can be difficult at times. Um and, and in the main, I, I don't feel like I have been um, held back more. I feel like I've been, you know, been warmly supported generally around my career development or, you know, the things that I've wanted to do. Having said that, I think one of the things that that I started to become more aware of is that you actually normalise quite a lot of the discrimination without even realising it. Um, and and actually it does pick away at your confidence. And I wrote a little bit about this in, um, I actually, I wrote about an article about it in the Times Higher because I started thinking about it. And also particularly when I started getting roles where I was in a position to do something about it, you know, to challenge little things, little behaviours that people just don't even realise that they make you feel uncomfortable and and sort of sap your confidence a little bit. So it's not like anybody has out and out gone, gone around trying to make my, you know, my either a promotion not work out or, or uh, you know, a bit of development not work out or anything. Anyone done really deliberately negatively to me or to, you know, other female colleagues around me that I've, I've witnessed. But it's this little picking away at your confidence thing that I've now started to try to challenge. So an example would be um, in an exam board where, you know, you have the academic staff sitting around and you go through the, the you know, the student marks. And there is always this language that's assuming that every single student is a he. And now, now we don't see the student names. You just get a number. It's all anonymous. Um, but that constant referring to he and then also, uh, you know, it, it just kind of makes you feel like you're in the wrong place because, you know, why would there be any female students studying this this degree? And similarly, I've had the same in interview panels where people don't look at the names of the people who are going to be coming to interview. And, and you know, well, we, we ought to ask him this and we ought to ask him that. And, you know, when, when he says this, perhaps we're challenging him on that. And, and I've, you know, said, well, hang on a minute. Do we know that all of the people coming for this interview are male? And they're like, oh, well, uh, no. And it's like, because there's this preconception, you know, you imagine that people have in their mind already who they want to employ. So I think that, that, um, you know, like I say, I've had lots of positive stuff around me, but I think we have to challenge this sort of uh, low level um, behavior, language and so on that makes females within engineering feel like they don't belong or they're not, you know, not normal and not normal to be a part of it. We have to challenge that and, and celebrate the fact that diversity is hugely important, you know, for creativity, for ideas, for innovation in engineering in particular. You've got to have diversity. And, and so, you know, we have to celebrate that and support it. 
just picking up on, you talked about students. So me, you and James actually went to the girls' night out at Jodrell Bank mm. and it was a really good event where it's encouraging basically girls to get into STEM subjects. Um, and it was kind of really encouraging to see the enthusiasm. Have you seen more women go into those degree subjects? Has there been an increase over the last few years or is it still a big problem? I think it's still an issue. Um, I think it surprises me sometimes when I think back to the debate that ha was happening. You know, when I left my PhD, I was working at the Institute of Physics. It was a really big deal there that they were trying to encourage more more girls to come study A-level physics so that they could then do physics or engineering at university. And uh, the figures haven't changed that much from then. And that was around the year 2000 and so. So, it, you know, we've not got there yet. Um, there's been some tremendous work actually done here at the University of Manchester in, in our Department of Physics where they've made a real difference and they have seen an increase. And I think that's fantastic. And I, I don't doubt that Jodrell Bank and, and um, colleagues who've worked really hard on getting like things like the girls night out working I'm sure that's had an impact I think we haven't yet seen that in engineering and we need to be we need to be making sure that we're showing how engineering is really relevant to to all of us um, and that you know to using imagery using role models using examples of of you know that, that aren't traditional that you know that really demonstrate some of the the innovation that you get and, and the opportunity that you get to be a student in this area and what kind of jobs you might get in the future you know in the food industry and in the pharmaceutical industry or it might be you know uh, 3d printing of prosthetic limbs or you know there's so many different amazing things that you can do with engineering and i don't think we sell it that well at the moment so we we're gonna we're working on it watch this space i'm hoping that in a few years time we'll have made a difference we've reached the point where we have our quick fire questions so first of all if you could implement one policy now to help with climate change what would it be moratorium on airport expansion basically <laughs> in in wealthy countries and then so one action that an individual can do to help combat climate change consider if you're a flyer consider how you use flying and to consider you know cut, cut your flights in half that might be you know reducing it by one per year it might be four per year it might be one in five years but consider that and do you have any funny stories from research? Is there any sort of field work or interviews that have gone massively wrong? Oh, crikey. Um, well, I mean, my my, my worst experience is the, an experience I had during my TED talk when uh, you see the edited version, which looks great, but the unedited version did go horribly wrong in the middle where I forgot my words for about 30 seconds and had to ask the audience to give me a big, massive cheer so that I could get myself back on track. And I just wanted the earth to swallow me up. That's probably my low light of my career. Guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure. Meat. <laughs> having to yeah and so i try to eat it a lot less often but i am still a i am not a vegetarian and i'm not a vegan yet and last question what was your first album um it was white snake um and i can't even remember the name of it now but it was the first album i think <laughs> god yeah that was a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> well alice thank you very much for coming thanks very much thanks for having me thank you.